Hello everybody and welcome to Soul Brew. Today we are talking with Daniel Dumick from Austria, uh, also identifies as Austrian-American. Um, I met Daniel in my time when I was in Vienna and I was working in a coffee roastery and this guy walked in one day and could hear this big American accent to find out that he was an artist based in Vienna and he was one of the first guys that kind of took me under his wing and extended the friendly arm and um, we became friends and we drank coffee and then we drank Irish whiskey and then we drank Scotch whiskey and then we drank more coffee um, and today we're talking to him he's based in Vienna Daniel is going to introduce us to the coffee today and then Stephen is going to open up the conversation Daniel what coffee are you drinking today and you're very welcome to the podcast well thank you for having me um, I'm on the last drops of my morning coffee that is from a neighborhood roastery uh, called Susmund, roughly translates as a uh, sweet mouth. And I've befriended the roaster uh, a couple of years back and it's organic, kind of roasted with much love and care. And this is kind of our standard morning blend um, with a little bit of robusta, um, just to kind of get the, the day going. Wow, there's a bit of a kick um, in it, then. So if there's robusta in it, <laughs> so what actually is the blend? Is 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 there much robusta in it? I think about this. I think this specific uh, blend has about thirty percent Tanzanian. That packs a punch. Oh. Yeah, there's gonna be flying so, here. Yeah, you're, you're gonna be wired in this podcast. <laughs> so I'm just to stay just to stay awake. Uh, throughout the morning love it um brilliant dan thank you very much and thanks for coming on i'm going to start off with a quote from one of my favorite authors who i believe you're a fan of as well and it's going to lead into the conversation um so it's from samuel beckett and the quote reads ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again feel better i'm sure you've heard of it before um, and we're kind of going to be chatting today so you're an artist and we wanted to be chatting about the process of being an artist and uh, what failure means to you and a few other things so I'll leave that comment with you and let you lead from here um, well great great start um, it's always good to start with Beckett even if nothing else comes out of a conversation if you've got a good Beckett quote people have <laughs> left <laughs> left that podcast that the podcast enriched um it's it's interesting that most artists if they know nothing about beckett um they will usually be familiar with that quote mm. and i've thought about that uh just recently because i'm about to you know have a a, a, a conversation with a beckett scholar in sydney um who will be writing a text for my upcoming show there this summer wow. um and and I thought about why why did Beckett, especially, and especially that quote, why does that have such an impact on artists? And I think it's just the simple, that that final, sometimes you'll just see it as fail better. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see it like on a Instagram poster or something. And I think it's bringing together something that most people will associate with shame or guilt or just embarrassment, failure bringing that together with something that we are striving towards, you know, doing better, being the best, you know, kind of our competitive nature. Mm -hmm. And 
it's almost there's hope kind of packed or kind of woven into that quote a little bit the sense of you know life will kind of obviously you know bring on some sense of failure every once in a while mm-hmm. um but but that specific quote i think awakens a sense that even within the failure it's not something that you overcome but even within the failure there's a chance to kind of do do well and do do something good um so that speaks to me a lot i think it speaks to a lot of other artists who you know art making tends to be wrapped up with a lot of failure all the time um and so i think it, that's a great mantra to keep in mind. Yeah. And can you talk us through what, what you mean by that? That artists t- tend to come with a lot of failure. What does that mean? And what does it mean to you? And maybe uh, Daniel, explain to our listeners what kind of art you do specifically and what you're involved in. Yeah. Well, so I. Um, tough I, question. I got, yeah, it's a tough, <laughs> tough, tough question. Um. Well, so I, I studied I studied painting uh, and 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 graphics at at um, the Fine Arts Academy here in Vienna, um, and but before that, I kind of I grew up uh, in a family of of family and marriage counselors. Um, my parents had no idea, you know, what an artist was or what their work work would look like. And, and I very early on, I think had, I was exposed to artists, mostly dead artists through our school library. Mm-hmm. And I immediately kind of going through these books um, felt a kinship. And so I, I grew up not thinking I will become an artist. I just grew up thinking I, I am an artist. And so there was this deep sense of connection and, and I was convinced what it means to be an artist is essentially kind of the, almost the Van Gogh the syndrome of you'll be poor, unrecognized, you know, unrecognized, um, unsuccessful all your life, but you do it for the kind of the idealism and the beauty of, of your work. And so um, for me, uh, I think I still carry that deep in my heart, this sense of you, you don't do art, you know, to get anywhere else. You kind of do it for the sake of doing it. Um, it's, it should be fulfilling in itself. And so, um, the process of, of, of painting for me usually takes me through kind of ups and downs where I try to incorporate as much as um, human experience as I can. Mm-hmm. And, and so I really do lean in to moments where I feel things are not going as planned. Um, and I think the history of art making, I think, has people... Um, trying to push the boundaries and i think pushing boundaries usually you know leads to areas or even experiences that are unchartered and and so i think the sense of failure often comes of neither yourself nor anybody else knowing if what you're doing or whatever you found in this uncharted territory is any good or worth keeping um, and it's a very subjective feeling because a lot of art, and as we know now, Vincent van Gogh, you know, didn't do bad work. Um, but at the time, he was very insecure about his own work. Uh, the rest of the world, you know, at least the art world, didn't really know what to do with it. And so he basically died 
uh, without any sort of insight of what his work would do to art history and and certainly not know how how well it would do at the art market mm. auctions it sounds a bit like risky business and um i think it's might be a very different story for someone who's just graduated from art college and maybe they've like no mortgage or no family or or no partner and when i met you first i thought you were some single bachelor living it up in vienna as an artist but that's not quite the case and so there's quite a there's quite a big commitment that you have on the other side of your life there and it's a little bit more risky for you to be an artist you would say as you're as you're self-employed because you're also married and have a family right exactly tell us a bit more about how how the art artists and you know you're not sure if you're going to get paid for your work as well as as trying to rear a family and as as well as trying to keep um, a marriage going yeah so going back to school um where i realized i was going to be an artist um roughly at the same time i met a young girl when we were 10 years old and I also decided this would be the girl I want to marry, which ended up happening. So I'm 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 both very naive and very good at at committing <laughs> to things that eventually come true. Um, and and we've been together, um, you know, off and on, obviously during our childhood years. Um, but we've been married now almost 17 years, and we have four children. And my, my favorite answer to give people uh, if they ask me about living as an artist, I say, yes, I can live off my work, but my children are all very skinny. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which, which usually gets, gets uh, the same, yeah, the same response. <laughs> a few strange looks. Um, but if you, could, also if, you, very... if, you, if you could say that completely deadpan, that'd be such a good. Yeah. <laughs> I usually do, and then I, I there's two responses: either people walk away, or they say, <laughs> "Let me come to your studio and buy a painting, yeah. so you can feed your children." Um, but yeah, so we've we've had this kind of um, this very creative project of having a family. Um, I think. That's something I've definitely noticed over the years, how closely related a family is to any sort of creative endeavor. I, th I think it's almost, in a sense, the most creative thing any human being um, can achieve. And whenever other parents tell me they're not creative, I, I usually tell them, "Is like, if you have a child, you, you're, you're creative. I mean, children force, literally force you into a, creative sphere just mm. because they're they're so uncontrollable and so in the moment and i think a lot of what art making is is trying to kind of be present to the raw material around you be it clay or paint or wood you, you're always trying to kind of say what does the the stuff in front of me actually want and if you see a mother discussing <laughs> you know, what shoes to wear, what t-shirt to put on today with their child, it's a similar kind of interaction. It's like, what does this child really need? 
is this about the shoes or is this about some other emotional need that is not being met? And so I think as a parent, you're trying to shift in and out of kind of this dynamic where, you know, you're juggling control and freedom, right? How much, how much do you want to be involved in every kind of decision? Every phase of your child demands a different level of balance um, in these things. And yeah, so now we have everything from a four-year-old to a 12-year-old teenage daughter who demands other <laughs> sort of interactions than, than she did when she was young. Um, but we've certainly made sure that life is not boring for the next, you know, yeah. couple of years. <laughs> do you think having children helped you in terms of creativity or do you think it, it takes creativity away from you in a sense when you go back to your art? So do you think you learn something new from your children that maybe you had forgotten or um, as an adult in terms of like playfulness and creativeness or how would you say having the children affected your art? That's a really great question. Um, I think, I think having children, I mean, in many ways was nothing like I expected it to be. Um, I mean, it challenged our relationship, our marriage to a degree I never thought it would. Um, it really brought us to the brink of, you know, questioning if if we were able to do this, if we were up to the task, um, especially early on. I think this idea of, in, in some ways, it's it's the way people talk about having kids as having kids. What's actually happen, happening is a family is being born, right? Mm -hmm. And that means all of a sudden there's a father and a mother and a child and that's a completely new kind of um, composition uh, with with different needs and different roles being present than than it used to be. And so I think often, I think we 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 underestimate how much new dynamics are at play uh, when you start having kids. Um, and and I think I was I experienced both. I. In, in many ways, I think kids forced me to be on my toes just constantly. Mm -hmm. And and it's why, you know, parents are always tired because they're always present. And, and they're constantly kind of frustrated <laughs> and exhausted, yet they will look back on that time and say, I was never as happy as when I had young kids, right? I mean, that's also kind of a classic saying which i think is true is because we're never so close to life and if you have young boys you know jumping off tall constructions in the playground it's really kind of often life and death i mean you just never know as as a parent will this day end in the hospital for one of my children or not and we've had those days where we've just you know it started great everybody was laughing and an hour later you're you know getting stitches <laughs> for one of your, your kids. And I think that that's what family does. It's kind of like you start the day and it's like anything can happen literally. Um, and that in itself, I think is a creative motor, 
and I've experienced days where I've really felt that kind of kick in and kind of help me in my, in my willingness to kind of approach my work in, in a much more playful and even risky fashion. But it's also created days where I've, I've, you know, gone to the studio, it's 10 AM in the morning and, and I have nothing like no energy. There's just, I can't, I, I just can't produce any sort of willingness to produce anything. And so there's, you start struggling with, with procrastination and, and just kind of trying to get yourself just to kind of stay awake um, enough to do kind of the daily chores. And so there's that as well, that reality. Do you, do you have any method or have you created any method or find any method that gets you over that slump apart from coffee obviously but um is there anything else that you might sort of dive into that gets them creativity juices flowing again or do you just walk away from it and come back well i think i mean this kind of brings i would take the question and just kind of place it on on art making or or creative work in general because i think I think one of the challenges I think a lot of creatives have is how does, how should I feel or what do I want to feel when I'm actually making my work? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the big difference, and you can ask a lot of people who've kind of made their, you know, their passion, a career, something changes when you take something that you actually only do when you're feeling up to it. And, and, you know, you do it off and on as kind of a hobby and you start doing it every day. Some something changes in your relationship to that work, and so you're you're never quite sure. I think if if doing good work as an artist is necessarily controllable, or even if you can monitor that necessarily by the way how you feel about it. So my technique of overcoming the feeling of things are not going well is essentially just to kind of keep working and trusting that despite my lack of, or my, my sense of, of not, not producing anything worthwhile, there's something happening underneath the surface that I can, that I have to trust. Um, and, and this I would say is true, I think for both parenting and, and a marriage, right? I think the big challenge, I think for our society and, and for young people, when they think of a, a long-term relationship or even a short-term relationship is, is, you know, we fall in love. There's a sort of feeling we have that we associate with that. And then that wanes and people are usually confused why that happened. And so there's all sort of techniques of how to keep the love alive, you know, how to kind of stay on that high. Um, whereas the reality, I think, certainly of a 17 year long marriage and everything longer than that is you sort of trust that even in the weeks and perhaps months of things never spiking or never going past a certain threshold that that the marriage is still good and you're still doing the right thing and and it's still growing and growing stronger right Mm -hmm. um and so that is a question of how you understand commitment, right? Uh, kind of uh, uh, with any sort of long-term project is being willing to experience 
a sense of, of frustration without giving up or without kind of forcing artificially feelings of success um, that often just distract from the reality. With art and that frustration and that commitment, I'd imagine that's quite an internal process. If you're standing in front of a blank canvas and there's nothing coming to you today and you're exhausted and it's not happening. With your marriage, is that a matter of staying quiet as well? Or are you communicating that frustration and that quietness and those no peaks and that um, binary mode that you would find yourself in? Hmm. Well, it depends on how angry the individuals are <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> um, I guess um, it's a question about communication. How do you communicate yeah. with the art and how do you communicate then um, in a in a relationship? Yeah. Um, well, in some ways, I mean, the nice thing about the art, it, it doesn't talk back. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can... Or at least not in an audible sense. Um, I think, I mean, in, in both, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it, it does talk back a little bit in a, in, in a way that, that it, it kind of forces you to kind of re-examine your own motivations. And so I think, I think in, in communication with, with my wife, I think there's also, um, certain experience has taught us not to argue at certain times of the day um, with kids. You all often will have to find uh, a ways of communicating, you know, concerning the basics of, 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 you know, the logistics of the day, even though you might be in the midst of a conflict. Um, it's, it's almost like you're, you're discussing, you know, peace treaties while you're still at war in some other <laughs> area. Um and it's it's really i mean there's a great um there's a great term by a by a american theologian called the language of listening where it says the way to peace with the other is learning to speak the language of listening which essentially means listening mm -hmm. but but listening as an active way of communication rather than just i'm going to let you finish so I get my turn to kind of tell you what's up. Um, and I think the language of listening in some ways for me refers to this act of saying, it's like, I'm going to really try to start speaking your language um, and to really understand what you're saying from your point of view. Um, and that's awfully hard. And I think requires patience, not only to let the other person finish, but also maybe to postpone your own desires in that moment and i think we're all you know i think if you're lucky you're in touch with your desires right but then if you're in a relationship you kind of have moments where you kind of have to set those aside and say it's like maybe your needs are more important than mine right now and there will be a moment where i can then verbalize my wishes um perhaps in a different setting uh or a different time and and if in a healthy relationship, I think that goes in both ways, right? There should never be any partner that says, I'm always the one kind of setting my wishes back. Um, but, but knowing what time it is 
for what partner to kind of maybe take the lead, I think is is something you get from experience, and it'll so certainly be different for every every phase of life um, in one relationship, but also you know from one relationship to another, it'll be a different way of kind of solving those issues. Yeah, it's, it's almost from what I understand of what you're saying from my active listening, um, that you believe a selflessness um, can go a long way in terms of your relationship but also probably that can be adapted into people's work relationships or I know we're talking about a, a romantic relationship here but do you think there's a lot of things that from a romantic relationship you can also bring into work relationships or friend relationships that are important well I think the best form of or the best marriage is essentially just a really good friendship right i mean obviously there's there's usually a sexual or intimate component on top of that um that that sets it apart from from um your normal friendships or work relationships i don't know what kind of work you do but (laughs) um or what friendship we have yeah side so it might be tiresome otherwise, um, but <laughs> but in terms, but I think in terms of of as you say, yeah, I think the best I think the best friendships are based on sort of a mutual giving um, to the other, right? Of time and attention and focus, and it's it's really never something. A friendship is unique because it's never something you can kind of demand and kind of put your foot down and say, you owe me attention or you owe me focus or, or whatever. It's usually something that kind of, if it's healthy, it's something that just kind of happens because both experience, you know, they're, they're, they're giving as, as a gift. And so both feel like it's like when we're together, I give you something and I receive something that is given freely. And, and I think a marriage usually just says, okay, because I know there will be times where I might be very annoyed at you. um, Let's tie the knot and, and put ourselves in a situation where even if we have to take temporary breaks and you leave the room and I leave the room, we kind of make a commitment that we take up the task of, of, giving our attention to each other and our focus um, in a really practical way um, as soon as we've kind of let our anger die down. And and it's really practical in a sense that I see in a stark contrast to kind of the, the overtly romantic idea of, of finding the right person that you will never have to put this work into, right? Um, who will just always kind of love you no matter what, which I think is unrealistic. I have a question um, <clears throat> that you might not be able to answer. Going by the conversation, you have quite, you've obviously done the work on yourself um, and on your marriage to be at, at this level of, of thinking and, you know, that that to get to a point where you're in, a, in an argument with someone <clears throat> that you're in a romantic relationship with and and you're thinking okay their needs may be more important than mine's right now and you're going to take that selfless act um i would argue that you can't always be selfless you know and 
I guess this is probably a two-part question is when do you know that that your needs would be more important than than theirs in that specific moment but I think the question I really want to ask is what if your partner's not of that thinking what if they're not at that level the same level that you're thinking that Um, well, you must have already had really good conversations with your partner to even establish that, (laughs) that they're not at that level. Um, I think there's certainly extreme cases where, where there's really one person completely unwilling to be invested in, in the relationship. Um, there are however good reasons and these have also been there's been studies done on this where behavior will be mirrored by the partner so good behavior will be eventually mirrored and i think there's something to be said for relationships where despite my partner not being willing to do the work i'm or this you know giving giving up certain things um, or, or setting his own priorities back. Um, if you keep doing it and there's a, there's a good chance, uh, it'll be mirrored eventually. Um, I think it's also important maybe to clarify that self being selfless in a relationship does not necessarily mean letting the other kind of trample all over your needs and wishes. I think there's a, a kind of a, some would say there's a fine line. I, I would I would say it's it's not that fine of a line. It's a pretty big wall between those two. Um, meaning to tell your partner the truth about his behavior and if he's wronged you is is a selfless act, right? Mm-hmm. So to to not tell someone who's been hurting you, for example, I wouldn't consider that selfless. I would consider that selfish because it usually has to do with your unwillingness to have conflict. And so you'll let your partner treat you in a certain way that you actually, that makes you feel bad. Um, and so I think the selfless act would be to say, it's like, if you've wronged me, I have, I have, it's a loving act to tell you, right? Because I give you the chance to actually make it right. Um, and that, switches the whole dynamic right and so i think you can have a relationship where there's a lot of conflict still and a lot of kinks being worked out um despite both partners really actually trying their best to be honest and tell each other their needs um but you could be unlucky just in terms of their ability or wisdom or or just how smart they are about meeting those needs and so that's why i think the longer you're together you can work out the details by kind of readjusting your language, you know, the way you formulate it um, and give each other feedback if, if, if you were understood or not. Um, And one thing that my wife and I do better now that we did in the beginning is we've kind of moved away from this idea that your partner, because he loves you will somehow know what you're, wishing for or what you need so this idea is like if you really love me 
I wouldn't have to say this. And we've moved to a very practical way of communicating our needs, um, you know, to just sitting down and say, you know, this week I would like us to do this and that, or I would need you to do this and that for me in, in a very almost, you know, the most unromantic way possible, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of people say, it's like, how could that possibly work? Especially if you think of, you know, um, the whole, the whole area of, of intimacy and sexuality, which says so that has to come in the spur of the moment. You can't schedule that in your calendar. Well, it turns out you can, <laughs> and <laughs> many, hmm. many successful couples do, right? Because they say, it's like, there's something to be said about giving your partner the chance to actually fulfill your wishes, but that only works if he actually knows what you're, what you're desiring and what you need. And so there's something really loving about just telling someone point blank, it's like, this is what I want. Yeah. <laughs> and you might be disappointed if, if they say, I, I'm not going to give you that, <laughs> or I'm not going to do that. But, but at least that's, I think the selfless act is actually telling the other person transparently what you want and what you need because you're you might be disappointed but you're probably going to be more disappointed more frustrated if you don't say it because they're never going to know that that's what you want right so that's exactly yeah yeah 100 yeah it's it's amazing that nearly every discussion we have communication always comes into about how just being open and honest seems to either solve problems or bring the problems to fore or like start solving problems and <clears throat> something that I think people are getting better at in general um, I know amongst my friend group and stuff would be quite good at communicating and being honest and open and I'm hoping that that's something that continues with younger people um, uh, into the future do you have anything else in terms of communication that you feel um, is important in your art or your work or your relationship i think yeah i mean certainly if we want to tie it up with bringing it back into the studio where you're i think as an artist you're kind of faced with a body of work or or, or a painting that you're in the process of um one i i somehow try to emulate my marriage in my relationship to my to my artistic work, you know, um, just without the sex. <laughs> <laughs> no judging here. You do, no. you do what you gotta do. <laughs> but um, I think for me, one one thing that has really, over the last you know almost two decades of of working as a as an artist, I think the question was also the question was often, am I honest in my in every step of the way of, of working on this piece. And, and it's hard to know what that means uh, as a painter, right? Because there's no, I mean, the painting won't respond directly. Um, but one of the things that I've, I've tried to kind of be very conscious about is my motivation to work. And, and I think, especially, you know, nowadays, there's, with with social media there's kind of this invisible audience kind of hovering um above every studio you know there's the you can post something on your instagram account and you can put it up on your website and so um 
there's always this this temptation to say it's like I'm going to do this for a certain amount of external effect or kind of visibility or exposure or applause. And so this question of what does it mean as an artist to be honest towards your material and towards the the practice that you've been you know disciplining yourself over a number of years to do. And and that's something I think there's no clear answer to that. It's certainly not an answer that you would be able to kind of, you know, just wrap up in, 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 in a, in a sentence or a quote. Um, although I do think for me, the Samuel Beckett quote you read earlier kind of comes very close to that. Um, because the whole quote goes, starts with trial and sticking with it up to the point of finding hope in failure and there's beauty there as well explain to me daniel what you mean by there's beauty there as well and the hope of finding failure um so i think that most most of us be it in art making or in relationships or in life or just in you know brewing a cup of coffee i think we're we're sort of we're in the search of of beauty and and there's you know this is a long tradition in philosophy of what that is and beauty is in the eye of the beholder and beauty standards change and there's a lot of that that we've kind of you know that you can find plenty of discussions on but but in in the most basic sense right there's a i think we're when I say beauty, it's not something superficial, um, but there's something um, complex about what we're after. Um, complexity is there anyway in 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 our life, and and pretty much everything we do, if you if you reflect upon it, it becomes very complex. And I know that baristas, if you ask them about coffee, you know, a cup of coffee is not just a cup of coffee, and and some people might wonder why would anybody in the world take something as simple as coffee, right? That you could just make, brew, and enjoy in the morning, and 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 know so much about or study so much. And and they would argue you're you're chipping away about the simplicity of of the beauty of the coffee. And most coffee nerds would say, no, I'm 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 going deeper, right? I'm going deeper into something that I love that will, just because I know a lot about it, it will not take away from the surface or the initial experience that's still there. And so in art making, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm looking for beauty also in the moments of failure, also in the moments of frustration, also in the moments of me not knowing if I'm wasting my time completely because I'm tired or just, you know, mostly tired <laughs> um i think i think what i'm after or what the the question behind behind all of that is is depth right and finding a certain level of depth in in my work and meaning in my work that is is hard to just kind of visualize on on the surface 
Um, and there's an analogy that I've, that, that has helped me um, to kind of understand my work as an artist, which is that of, of a gardener. And, you know, if you think of, if take your basic garden that has flowers or, um, you know, anything growing in it, um, the plants are generally just things you kind of help usher along by, by watering them, making sure they get enough sunlight, but it's not really something that a human has done, you know, as a human, you're as a, as a person, you're just kind of the gardener is just helping it grow. Um, but the, the really active work goes into kind of keeping your, your, the, the, the earth, the dirt, the, the soil fertile. And, and that's in some ways the dirty work, right? You kind of keep, you make sure that the dirt is just full of nutrients and you get your hands dirty and generally people don't go around applauding great dirt apart from gardeners right but we don't go up to people and it's like oh you know i saw you have a great pile of dirt there well done you know we we get excited about things that kind of blossom and bloom and and so i've shifted in my thinking i've shifted my focus from um work that will eventually become you know visible and perhaps even get the applause to the work that is kind of hidden away in the studio which i equate with someone digging and and keeping keeping their their soil you know ready for things to grow and there's great beauty in that in that work and but there's not often a whole lot to show for it right and and i think if you take the shortcut and you say no i want to make you know superficially beautiful things you end up usually producing something that's quite contrived and simple and sort of predictable um and there's that's fine i think if you're if if you're able to do that but in my case i think i was always after getting better dirt than i was getting you know more <laughs> more flowers and so something most tells of my me, work i think tells me that you're talking not just about your work here that's what i'm picking up on i feel like you're talking about your family as well yeah i think there's i think it's hard to you know have one level of commitment in one thing in your life and not in the other right i think you just you ex you extrapolate from one field to the other and i think um you know my a marriage certainly right over the years the quality of a marriage is not always visible to the outside world um there's 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 something about just growing old together um and 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 being comfortable around another person um that's quite beautiful i think at some point when you actually do get old and you see an old couple walking down the street i think people do recognize that that's beautiful um but the the path that it took to get to that point is often just really really complex um and hard to kind of just put in a in a nutshell um and i think the beauty of complexity is something that we that that you have to commit to um and and it's present everywhere and if you try to 
dumb it down. I think you end up with uh, um, just yeah, less 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 meaning and ultimately less beauty. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying there is resonating with it. <clears throat> a book I'm reading at the moment called Bounce. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever heard of it or read it. Mm-hmm. Who's what, it by? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, I don't know who's by. It's uh, a guy that was a table tennis champion, world champion. And he got a bit obsessed with the idea that the 10,000 hour idea. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. of it? About the practice of something for 10,000 hours and how it, how you become, or you can become amazing at it. And a lot of what he's saying is just making me think, or what you're saying here is making me think about that in terms of like, you know, child prodigies that people might earmark as, you know, like someone that um, is an unbelievable tennis player or golfer when they're 10 years old. And that it's all just pure sort of talent and luck. Whereas what he's saying is a lot of that is coming. They've already done the 10,000 hours prior to that or up to 10,000 hours. And it's just all about, there's so much in it, but it's about, um, you know, and, and a lot of his is sport analogy or music analogies, but it's about putting that practice in, but also about purposeful practice. But I think it kind of can be brought into any aspect of your life, like your art or your marriage, where it's, you do have to put in hours and you have to, it has to be purposeful hours. And when you do, you become better and better at it. Um, so it's just something that you're saying. And just what you're saying there, I think, resonates a lot with that. That you just, for most things, you have to put hours in. And you're not going to get better until you do. I think. Um, yeah. But in terms of, do you find with having a family and especially young children, do you think you then have less hours or have you managed to find a balance with your art and other aspects of your life? Um, there's a there's a, a British um, um, painter Auerbach who's still alive. He was part of kind of the Francis Bacon, Lucian Freud group, um, and he's kind of the last of the bunch who's still working. And um, as far as I know, he works um, every day of the year. Um, gets up at five o'clock. He paints every single day, supposedly, but one, I don't know if that's his birthday or Christmas or, or a wedding anniversary. Um, and, you know, he's asked about that as you know, I think the question is if he doesn't think it, it sounds like it's a little bit obsessive and his answer, I think is I, I, I would hope so. <laughs> so he's fully aware, I think of, of that. And there's, when I hear stories like that, there's a part of me, quite honestly, says, I, I wish, I wish that were me. Because I think there's just something, if you do something you really are invested in, in some ways, the thought of having just endless amounts of time or doing it every single day is, is, is tempting. And then being a father and, and, and a spouse, I'm also aware that that takes time as well, right? You have to put in hours into, into those areas of your life as well. And, and I just, I think I realized that I would be so much, a, a much poorer man if I would kind of sacrifice one part of my life just to enhance the other. Um, 
And I also suspect, I think, because we're all different and we're wired differently, that there's a good chance that my art would not get better just by having more hours to put in. Um, but that there's kind of a correlation between just how I'm structured with my interests and my abilities to, to be someone who loves communicating with others, um, who loves communicating with my wife um, and with my children. And if that means that I'm not able to be a full-time artist all the time, right? Because I'm half-time doing something else. Um, it doesn't make me less of an artist. And I think there's something in our, in, in, in our current society that wants to somehow isolate individuals to say, it's like, you're only going to be good at this if you dedicate your whole life and almost like sacrifice everything else to just do this, this one thing. And if you think of figures like T.S. Eliot, who worked at a bank, right, and, and was editor of a magazine and still wrote one of the most important poems and, and poems of, of, of the 20th century, it would almost be unthinkable to have a full-time artist saying, I'm an artist, but I also work at the bank, right? Um, or I'm a lawyer and an artist. We usually look at that and say, it's like one of those things you must be doing very badly and it's probably the art part. Um, but there you have it. You've got figures who had families, had jobs and still were brilliant in, in their field. Um, and so, yes, I think it does take commitment, also the willingness to put in work. Um, and you might end up with only a handful of great paintings instead of, instead of, you know, 30 or 40. Um, but in the end, it's a question of quantity versus quality, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and just because you have many paintings doesn't mean that any, any one single one of them is worth your attention or focus. <laughs> just keep talking there if you want. <laughs> um, versus, I guess, in the end of having your art, having your children and having your wife, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think there's, I mean, and again, a, a friendship, a friendship certainly is, you know, friendship with the men in my life, but also with my wife, I think is probably the one thing I couldn't do without. Um, and I've, I tend to be very honest that I, I could easily probably, not easily, but I, I would survive stop to stop making art. And I know other artists would say, it's like, I couldn't, you know, I'm an artist. If I, if I couldn't make art, I might as, uh, might as well not live. But I think so much of who we are and who I am as a, as a human is tied up in, in my relationships to others. And, and I reflect upon those relationships in my work and I've been able to serve others by, by letting them see the work, have the work, some, in some cases buy the work, but, but it's really the friendships 
to other people that that kind of I think makes makes me who I am. Um, and I usually, I mean, my wife knows this. I said, just whenever you feel like it's too risky, I'd be happy to take another job. Um, and for whatever reason that hasn't happened yet, it's always been going good enough that I can keep making my art, but it's, it's nothing that it, I would ever put on that same level as human relationships. I don't know if that makes me a really kind of amateurish artist now, or if that's a brilliant life hack. <laughs> or, a really, or a really good human, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would agree with, with a lot of that. I think that's um, where I get my sort of buzz off, I guess, is the relationships with people and spending time with people. Um, yeah. I know off, everyone's different, so some people that might not uh, be there their main sort of aim or enjoyment but for me it's definitely like going for a dip with friends or having a coffee or ha like having this chat here and um, that's where i get it from but well i think that's um one of my main drivers for for having like a small coffee business at the moment and even though i'm not um sometimes when i'm busy i'm not getting time to to sit and enjoy it but at the moment like even there on sunday <clears throat> the weather was good and i'm able to facilitate this space where people are allowed to come and drink a coffee but you know like daniel what you were saying like i understand a good bit of the intricacies of coffee um but it still doesn't take away from the simplicity of the product and the product is it's a beverage that brings two three four five people together to get to sit and get to have a conversation and get to interact with each other and i'm sitting in my little coffee fan and i hear people laughing and hear pe people talking and that's what does it for me it's such a it's such a beautiful thing and you know in terms of failure sometimes you make bad coffee but it still can facilitate something beautiful um and that's one of the main drivers for me to to do what i do uh and again, it's it's not really about the product; it's about what the product does for other people. So I could live without coffee as long as I could still have the relationships with the people that I get to to have through it. It's beautiful, yeah. Okay, I think we could probably talk all day. Yeah. Um, so we better wrap this up. Um, and. I guess I've got to say my bit. Um, and Stephen, have you anything that you would like to say or ask before Daniel will give Daniel the final word? Nothing more. I'm really looking forward to actually listening back to this um, with another cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, really enjoyable conversation, uh, Dan. Uh, you have a lot of really interesting opinions and thoughts. So thank you very much for joining us. And if you have any final words or queries or questions, um, we'll leave or that quotes. to you. Yeah. Well, here's one thing that that kind of ties uh, most of or a lot of what we spoke today together is um it reminded me of the friendship between samuel beckett and uh uh the painter bram van velde um bram van velde is is kind of a more or less unknown or at least underappreciated painter and who's gotten more attention recently but 
but Beckett was um, friends with this guy who didn't paint a whole lot, you know, who literally was very poor most of his life, painted in the garage, was married, um, sometimes had to decide if he was going to buy canvas or just kind of buy better food. <laughs> um, and one of the things the two did together was walk in silence. They would meet and just walk together. And both this idea of, of being, being together, I think, this friendship that was tied not so much just by conversation or kind of, you know, the same line of work, but just by showing up and, and, and being present. And I think this is something, if you've ever felt like life is shit, I think meeting a friend and walking, even if it's in silence, is, is the antidote. Um, and so I think it's a challenge to all the listeners and to you two and, and myself, perhaps, to spend more time doing that, um, not just in solitude, but actually grabbing someone's hand. Do you want to take a silent, a silent walk in honor of Beckett? Beckett's <laughs> friendship with Bram. <laughs> see what see what happens. We might be, uh, we we might we might be surprised. So yeah, those are my final my final thoughts. I like the idea of that. Yeah, I think that's something. Uh, Could you think we would manage to say that walk together? <laughs> <laughs> we were actually seeing uh, Dan before we had the com- the conversation with yourself. That takes me in about two hours just to set things up because we end up chatting yeah. and. To actually get into the depth of it, yeah. So maybe a, a silent, a silent bit of time would, would do us both a bit of good. So, thank you for that, Dan. Thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. To you can maybe how do, would you sign off in your finest Viennese for our listeners? To see bye bye. Well, I'm not. I moved to <laughs> to Vienna, so I would just say um, of of Wiedersehen <laughs> <laughs> with a nice. Nice American, thick American ac- accent. <laughs> Sounds just as good. Yeah. Yeah. All accent going yeah. uh, you guys definitely, you guys definitely have to come to Vienna and do some Viennese sessions here for Soberu. Yeah. Um, you would translate it as Salen Brauerei. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to try to say that. Salen Brauerei. Talk soon. Talk soon. Ciao. Thanks, Dan. <laughs>